not only do I have an uncle and a great uncle who are Jesuits, but my father was a Jesuit priest for 17 years before he left uh, after meeting my mother and deciding to get married and have a family when he was maybe 39. But the Jesuits are the educators of the church in so many ways. And so when you become a Jesuit, you are expected to get a PhD in a subject that you will then teach. So for my dad, he was one of five kids and the two, he and his brother who became Jesuits had their educations paid for, had this incredible investment in their own opportunities and what they were capable of. Um, so my uncle went to Brown for his PhD. My dad went to Fordham. So that's where he met my mom. She was in grad school. So um, I think those were this, you know, all together, right? That the point of, of Jesuit mission and education is to have this lifelong curiosity that drives you. He really emphasized the joy of learning, that it is fun. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Each week, I partner with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president, chancellor, system leader, or someone in the broader ecosystem who's really an inspiring leader. And the goal is to have a conversation to distill their perspective and their insights gathered from their leadership journey. Our hope is that this is inspiring and gives you something to look forward to each week. This episode, my co-host is Inside Higher Ed co-founder and CEO, Doug Lederman. So today we're joined by Tanya Tetlow, who is the president of Fordham University. She was previously president of Loyola University, New Orleans, and before that had a career in the federal legal system or the, as a federal prosecutor. And we're going to hear about that and more. Welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you. It's really lovely to meet you. You have such an interesting background. I mean, a former U.S. attorney, second presidency, always super interesting for us to hear what you learned from the first one, you're going to get a second, bringing that legal perspective and then into higher ed. So lots for us to dive into, but I want to just first start with, now you started this presidency at Fordham last summer, so it's still pretty fresh, but you have the experience of a prior presidency. So I'm just curious if you can set the table with us about what's your approach to this presidency that was informed by that prior experience? Well, when I started at Loyola, they were in the midst of getting through a financial crisis. I knew that I had a stopwatch to really earn trust from the community to keep everyone from panicking that we were going to be fine um, as long as we didn't make ourselves spiral out by losing faith. And so that really gave me a deadline to do the kind of um, not just listening tours, but proactively address faculty meetings, student groups, make the rounds, not just have them get to know me in a soft sense, but dig into the details start creating that sense of transparency, basically reassure them of my own competence that I knew what I was doing because I had the facts and numbers and figures at my hands very quickly. I think being able to do that at Fordham, which is a bigger scale and more complicated organization, so it takes a little longer, but that served me well in that regard. And the other thing I think I learned is that at Loyola, I, I grew up 
in and around that university. I never worked there, never went there, but just everyone in my family did. And I had so many close relationships there already, but it made me far more thin skinned. I think I was so desperately afraid of disappointing anyone and, and really took it hard when people were critical, which they had a perfect right to be. So I find myself coming to a new place, new community where I have less of a head start, but I also have a thicker skin about, I know it's not personal because they don't know me yet. And so that amount of positional distrust and cynicism is just part of the game and that I, I don't, you know, take it to heart. That's really good advice because people definitely do try and make everybody happy. And that is a formula for failure. How would you characterize the skin thickening process? Like what contributed to that or what changed in you that made you they're less wor worried about criticism, but able to handle it better? And trust me, I still have a long way to go, right? If I think criticism is fair, I turn to self-deprecating pretty quickly. When I feel like it's unfair, I still bristle. I think part of what I learned from Loyola and the advantage I had there is that everyone was out of the fog of denial. They understood that the survival of the institution was at stake if we didn't figure things out. So they gave me a lot of leeway to make the hard choices and to realize that we had to play the long game, that this isn't about just the people who work here at any one moment, that we have to answer to the future people like us 20 and 50 and 100 years from now. And so I think part of that has given me the sense that I owe these obligations more broadly and that the, the one definition of what is not the role of a university president is to always be pleasing the people here at this very moment, right? That that can lead you to do all the wrong things. And so to have a little bit of a stronger sense of that ultimate purpose. And then often if we just play interest group politics and try to balance who's yelling loud at, at us, we end up doing all the things that are least strategic for the university. And we don't invest in the trajectory of what we can do when we stop wasting resources and really focus on what matters most. So I think that broader sense of, of trying to do what's right by people and which may not always correspond to what they think is in their interest at any one narrow moment, but thinking big picture has really helped. And getting used to the fact that people get mad at you and then they get over it. So it is what it is. I love it. That really resonates in terms of, if I think about presidencies that have been particularly effective, it really is they have to dance with this because you do come into the role. There is a uh, desire to make everyone happy. There is a conflict. The, the existence of these institutions, their budgets entirely, there is a conflict that we have to dance with. But I also think about some of the leaders that people always talk about wishing they had a leader like X or Y um, when I talk to boards. And I was like, you think you want that. Uh, you think that, that that leader actually, like, they get that from just trying to make their board happy? No, they have to push. And you you think you want a strong leader like that, but that usually comes because they have to lead and they often outpace their board. So that's really solid advice. I want to talk about the navigation from, first off, I think it's super interesting that you were a U.S. attorney, a prosecutor, and have this kind of legendary background leading in that space. Then you just all of a sudden, you just wake up one day and you're like, higher education, that's where my next move is. I'm just so curious about your thinking about that because one is so logical and one is not. <laughs> and I am, and I think that uh, when you're at the top of your game and one that has structure and order and makes sense to take the leap to go into a space that there is far more ambiguity than there is process and order, frankly, at times. So for me, I didn't go straight into university administration where I think that would have been more jarring. You know, I went into faculty. But for me, the transition was that my parents are academics. I found myself as a practicing lawyer 
teaching as an adjunct and writing law review articles for fun, which is not normal behavior. So I always felt that draw, but I worry that being in higher ed would meant not being in the world, not having enough direct impact in a way that I could see on people, right? You do through students, but that it, it just would feel very different. So what lured me in was a rare job within the legal academic world of a tenure track position that was running a clinic. And in this case, a clinic focused on domestic violence. And so I had the chance to serve real clients, teach students, not just in the abstract, but how to really practice law with high stakes cases where people's lives were at stake, right? Which is a boy, an easier way to teach when literally the answer of somebody's life depends upon it students pay close attention. And then also to do policy work, right? I found that if I could put on a professor hat, the criminal justice system listened to me in a different way where I wasn't just a participant, but I could be the expert coming in with a neutral unbiased look at just how to make things better. That was this perfect balance of everything I love. Plus the fact that I had to stop and write about what I was doing, which is a masochistic pleasure. But you don't really know what you believe until you have to write it and footnote it, right? So even that was very valuable to me too. Doing that, and then I think, you know, you get pulled into administration if you are a problem solver and people happen upon you and it kind of went from there. Do you feel like you have a perspective that will help higher education be a little bit more process-oriented, be a little bit more logical? Like, do you see changes that need to happen in higher ed because of the lens that you apply from the legal profession that we're trying to navigate these really bumpy waters of change right now? So lawyers seem to be, in many ways, taking over university presidencies. It's a growing trend. And I think that what we bring to it are a few things, the taking in vast amounts of data and honing in on what matters, that sense of logic and analysis but combined with, because lots of people have that, right? You know, my uh, provost is a chemistry professor and he's incredibly analytic in that way. Um, but combined in, in certain kind of lawyers with, you know, I used to try jury trials. So how do you persuade? How do you take a group of people from very different backgrounds, which is often true of all the constituencies that we bridge in higher ed as sort of a vast array of different people from different perspectives and think about how you get to all of them, right? That you it matters where they are and where they're starting from and how you get them on board. And that's not just about logic. That's about what people really believe and feel and, and how to um, appeal to them. I am Ray Magliazzi, co-host of NPR's Car Talk. If you're working to solve the biggest challenges in higher education, you've come to the right podcast. And if you're looking for a student retention platform proven to get results, check out Mainstay.com. I may be biased because the CEO of Mainstay just happens to be my son. So instead of taking my word for it, you can trust the research they've done with Georgia State, Brown, and Yale as proof that Mainstay improves enrollment, retention, and well-being. Visit Mainstay.com research to learn more. What do you think are the elements that presidents or, or leaders most often miss? Is it that they forget the emotional and focus on the facts. I don't know if there's a way to sum it up, but what, what do you think you've learned about persuasion and how to persuade multi, very diverse groups of constituents about something that people can learn from? 
Well, there's everything from the basics, like you can't talk in acronyms and jargon and not think about what your audience knows and doesn't know, right? There's the sort of obvious stuff that people miss surprisingly amount, but also that um, it's not just about logic, right? I was listening to a neuroscientist the other day. I was talking about the fact that the human brain is wired to be intensely social because you know, when a, um, another kind of animal is born, they can take care of themselves and survive almost immediately. Humans, it takes at least eight years before we can function on our own, right? And so we have to be wired towards caring about each other and having strong senses of relationship and status and fairness and all these things. And so being very aware of the psychology of it, of what change management means. And, and instead of just thinking, well, I'm being logical, right? And this change is good. And why don't people understand that? Of understanding that change is loss, change is hard, even when it's good change, even when it will clearly be worth it. You're asking a people to take on uncertainty, to give up what they've always known and do something different. Um, and if you are empathetic about that and reassuring about that, it will just work better. So I think sometimes our own egos and our own sense of, well, this is so clearly rational, gets in the way of really helping people make the bridge the gap that you're asking them to take on. If you look at your background, not only, you know, you've had these, these really high profile roles of, of late, but you've also been wildly successful from an early age, National Merit Scholar. You went to college when you were 16. You're a Truman Scholar, like all of these incredible things. And for me, what I take from that is that you must be incredibly disciplined. How is it is you get yourself to, to work so hard and to be so focused? Are there any things that for you repeat to yourself or is there anything that someone else said to you that it made you become so, what I would interpret as disciplined in order to be so exceptional? The discipline came later, really, when I was practicing law and realized that if you drop a ball, you can get sued for malpractice. And so I learned a lot more of those skills of just how to execute well. I think my driving sense of purpose really came from growing up in a family full of Jesuit priests, which uh, who may have been secretly preparing me for these roles of leading Jesuit institutions without actually telling me that, like some Manchurian candidate. The way I was raised is that Whatever gifts you have are not for you, they're to matter to the world and that strong sense of needing to matter. And I think even more so because I have a youngest sister who's severely learning disabled and understanding that her achievement in, in passing high school was so much more impressive than anything on that list you just listed, that um, being smart and quick way, which is the kind of intelligence I have, doesn't make me better than anyone else. It just doesn't. And it is a responsibility, though, to put it to good use. That was a lot of the push. But all um, softened in a way of having been raised in New Orleans, which also really is intensely relational and cares about people and has moments of joy and enjoying life, too. So I don't think I fit into the mold of someone who's been, you know, nose to the grindstone my whole life. It's, it's more about that desire just to matter, to challenge myself, to feel like I'm doing good. Um, that's a great answer, but also then it bumps me out. So I was like, it was just going to be, I was going to be like, it was just that you're not disciplined enough. That's the answer. But nope, it's actually much more something totally in control. So um, that's a great perspective. And I love that insight from the Jesuit tradition. You've mentioned your background a little bit. You say your parents were also academic. Which of those background things influenced you the most, do you think, and most shaped kind of where you've landed? I mean, it sounds like you've brought them all together in one neat package, but I assume it wasn't that quite that simple. Well, they're, they're interrelated. So not only do I have an uncle and a great uncle were Jesuits, but my father was a Jesuit priest for 17 years before he left 
uh, after meeting my mother and deciding to get married and have a family when he was maybe 39. But the Jesuits are the educators of the church in so many ways. And so when you become a Jesuit, you are expected to get a PhD in a subject that you will then teach. So for my dad, he was one of five kids and the two he and his brother who became Jesuits had their educations paid for, had this incredible investment in their own opportunities and what they were capable of. Um, so my uncle went to Brown for his PhD. My dad went to Fordham. So that's where he met my mom. She was in grad school. So um, I think those were this, you know, all together, right? That the point of, of Jesuit mission and education is to have this lifelong curiosity that drives you. He really emphasized the joy of learning, that it is fun, that it is for the rest of your life. It is not about school and degrees and credentials. That was deeply embedded in me. And I grew up, you know, with dinner table conversations. If they didn't want to under be understood, my mom was a biblical scholar. They'd speak in Latin or Greek, talk endlessly about ancient Mesopotamia. I want to go into the Jesuit thing because it says that you are the first lay president at both the institutions that you've been president. And I'm sure that comes with a multitude of fun and quirky stories uh, to go with it. But this is not going to be the last time that a religiously affiliated institution transitions to a different leader. And I'm wondering if you have advice for the boards of those institutions about things they could do or how they could think that could ease that transition for those theoretical candidates. If you were advising some other institution, not your own, is there anything that you would say that might help make the path easier for another president? Yeah, I mean, these are real issues. We've seen this in Catholic institutions when a lot of the, the nuns who ran hospital systems had waning numbers even sooner than the priests and had to turn over these systems to lay boards and leadership and hope they wouldn't lose their their way, right? So it, it is, in self-interested language, it is our brand. It's how we stand out in the market. It's also the whole point of what we do. It's our culture. And so how do you not lose that is about picking people who don't just have some of the formal education because that can be taught, but whose heart is in the same place, right? That it is deeply rooted in them in some form or fashion. And then I think it matters to get that training quickly, right? I, I was raised with all this knowledge of Jesuit way of proceedings, but I didn't have a lot of formal training. And even at Loyola, when I was jumping right into the fire of so much, I was also reading books about Jesuit identity and history so that I would get that language right so I could call upon it to kind of rally the troops and make us all feel a sense of overarching purpose. So it matters to do that well and to do it quickly and to treat that as a high priority. And for the institutions themselves, I know that the AJCUR consortium is thinking really hard as we've made almost, you know, we're down to uh, now, I think it will be three of the 27 led by Jesuit priests themselves, right? So a huge transition in the last few years um, that we take that training very seriously, too, and make it available and possible and ongoing. These are not issues that I, working typically with public university presidents, think about, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating kind of nuance to part of higher ed that is very new to me. As we transition to the final questions that are fan favorites, what has been the most surprising thing for you about your career? I had no notion that I would end up doing any of this. I think partly my career has been more odd and 
shifted in many ways because I was so rooted in one place. I, I never thought I'd leave New Orleans. Um, and so I made jumps because there wasn't an easy ladder to go up that required me to move around. And so I think I've been more creative in that way for that reason. Um, but I was remembering when I was an undergrad at Tulane, uh, I was a student worker in the president's office. And the then president, uh, Dr. Eamon Kelly, told me once, don't ever be university president, Tanya. It is a terrible, terrible job, which is very <laughs> But the thing that I love that I just figured out only a few weeks ago is that Eamon Kelly went to Fordham and had he known he was speaking to the future president of his alma mater, he would have really laughed. So, and I think it's for me, it's about being open. I, I don't have a plan. I just sort of wait and see what falls in my lap and kind of feel ready for whatever comes. Are you constantly surprised that that's a message that your students don't seem to readily understand. Like I, 20 somethings, actually, uh, actually my son turned 30 today, but I've spent a lot of time talking to them and all their friends. And I'm constantly shocked that they all seem to think that everybody has a plan. My main advice sounds a lot like what you just said, which is <laughs> no, some people may seem like it. And you know, there might be a few doctors out there who know from the age of six, what they're going to do forever. But like most people are accidental somethings in in one way or another and uh you know you, so anyway I, I assume that's a message yeah. you talk to students a lot about i do and you would think they'd understand it because their world is so shifted to knowing that different careers and that the things i meet a lot of young alums who are doing something that didn't exist when they came before them i also think at their age we also felt like every decision we were deer caught in headlights that it would determine the rest of our life irretrievably. And you just sort of feel frozen by that. So it's also fairly normal. I'm just thinking about your Jesuit upbringing and the whatever gifts you have are gifts that you should give to the world. I think that's really great advice. So I want to ask you about the best advice that you've received that has been most useful for you personally in your career. Beyond what you've shared with us, is there anything that someone once gave other than don't be a university president, which obviously... Um, <laughs> The main stuff is what I talked about, but there was another thing my uncle once said to me that has saved me so much angst of late, which is I was agonizing over whether to let somebody go, right, which is among the hardest decisions we make, the most important and also just painful. And he said, the question isn't what to do. You need rid of this person. The question is how to do it. And separating out those two things has saved me such grief, right? Because you can agonize over something that's going to be difficult and then justify not doing it or kicking the can down the road. And to really separate out the fact that something will be strategically very hard to achieve versus what the right answer is, has been super useful. And that is the most painful part of leadership. I agree. Is there advice that you most consistently give to young people other than you didn't have a path, <laughs> don't don't freak out. Or for people who are aspiring to the presidency, I'm, I'm particularly interested if you hear from lawyers or if you hear from deans of law schools that are contemplating this jump, is there any advice that you find yourself most consistently giving to others? I think with the young people, one thing I've told them is that to seek out mentors, that when you get to be older, you realize it's actually pretty flattering and enjoyable to be a mentor, and they should understand that. Um, and that was... One of my turning points in my life is when I was 16, I wrote to Congresswoman Lindy Boggs, who I wanted to be when I grew up. Her, she's the mother of Cokie Roberts and just an amazing 
force of nature and said, I would like to be you when I grow up. Could I please meet you? And she said, yes. And it, you know, it ended up changing a lot of my life. But so that I, th I think for people who want to be presidents is just to be aware it's, it's less about being the best at any particular skill than having the wide variety of skills, right? Having an unusual range of skills between the creative and the analytic emotional intelligence, and that it's going to tax absolutely everything you have. And it is an amazing job and I love it almost every day, but it is also brutally complicated. I did a training to be on a regional bank board and all I could think of is banking is so easy compared to higher ed, but that's what makes it fun. I shared that I think it was uh, Dave Frohmeyer, the president of the University of Oregon, who said that being the president of a university is like being the president of a cemetery. It's like sage advice. I'm sure other people have shared something similar, but it's, yeah, you're technically on top, but nobody's safe actually listening <laughs> to you. The final question I wanted to ask is about uh, if there is a book that has been particularly useful for you in your leadership journey that you find yourself most consistently recommending to others, personal development, professional, or if there's any, you know, we've had some people recommend French poetry. If there's one touchstone for you. Well, two books. Adam Grant's rethinking was really helpful for me because he talks about the various kinds of ways you could engage with the world. One of them is prosecutor, and it's very much how I roll. And I tend to cross-examine people a little more than I they find pleasant. Um, and instead, to be a scientist, to be curious all the time, to ask open-ended questions, to be willing to think you're wrong all the time. It's been really helpful. And the other is uh, Chris Lowney wrote a book called Heroic Leadership. He was a Jesuit who became an investment banker. And he talks about the Jesuit way of proceeding um, from the perspective of business, but of the ways that for 500 years, this largest religious order in the world has flourished because of ambition, sort of a detachment from the way they've always done things and a willingness to focus on what matters, but to change, to be innovative and nimble. It's really beautifully done. And it's been so useful both to summarize the lessons deeply embedded in me, but also to give me language to lead a Jesuit institution and say, when we are entrepreneurial, when we're nimble, when we play the long game, that is who we are, right? So that's, that's what we need to do more of to survive, to flourish, to make a difference. You really lived up to the title of Weekly Wisdom. I feel like we've gotten so many different nuggets I'm going to be digesting throughout the week. And I hope that this has been the case for, for folks at home. Really quite a delight to meet you. And I, I'm glad that we're able to elevate you as a leader because I think uh, we need to have different voices and, and leaders elevated in higher ed so that we're really leveraging all the wisdom that's out there. So this has been great. Doug, thanks so much for being a fantastic co-host. And for folks at home, we will see you next week. Thanks so much.